0: Okay, like I said, we're continuing part two of last week's message, so uh, if you missed, no problem, you'll be able to jump right in. If not, you can still go back and check it out, but we're just going to get right into it um, and waste no time. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 and 23 of our text this morning, the Lord says to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Now, I split this passage into two, but ideally it should be treated as one, because immediately after the parable of the rich man, Christ then proceeds to draw out the implication of his words. For this reason, he says, connecting to what he said before. So, if Christ's warnings about greed and possessions are true, and they are, then this is how one must live. The Lord says, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So far from being consumed and weighed down, By earthly possessions, disciples, that is us, are those who have an almost blissful disregard for those things. They are not a cause of concern for followers of Christ. Because remember the Lord's words last week Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So greed, or covetousness, we found, has a totalizing and reductive power. Greed pushes out consideration of anything beyond the material, beyond possessions, and it reduces the meaning of life to the accumulation of things, to getting more, to having more, to increasing ourselves. And for that reason, the greedy life is a fundamentally secular life, that is One becomes a greedy person, holding back all their wealth and their goods, refusing to share only when they have forgotten God and heavenly things. There is a connection between our vision of what is to come, of our hope that awaits us, and our disposition toward our possessions in this life. The Lord says, No one can serve two masters for either He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So material possessions and the accumulation of wealth consume a person because that's all they have regard for. They cannot see past them. They cannot see things unseen. And that, we said last week, was the rich man's failure so occupied with holding on to his goods, he disregarded what mattered most, his own soul. He was rich materially, he had all these possessions, but he was a beggar and destitute toward God. And such a reduced field of vision, we said, is a particular challenge in our time. We are in constant danger of disregarding heavenly riches for earthly ones. Far from promoting generosity and a simple lifestyle, our economy thrives by turning us into unsatisfied consumers. The whole system works by making us want more and more and more. Again, the one aim of Wall Street and Silicon Valley is to monetize what the Apostle John calls in First John chapter 2, the lust of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And our, well, the marketing agencies, the advertising agencies, they've largely succeeded in this. All of life is now understood in consumptive terms. Even the most sacred things, relationships, family, and the church are merely products designed to, to be consumed, and then disregarded when they no longer meet our needs. And the critique can go even further, almost endlessly, but the point is that the economic practices that um, our culture regards as normal are untenable for Christians. Now, for those who have no hope in the age to come, materialism and consumerism is a perfectly legitimate response. What does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? If the resurrection isn't true, if we have no hope in the age to come, he says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So materialism, consumerism a good approach to life if we have nothing awaiting us. If there's nothing hereafter, then great, accumulate all you can get. Eat, drink, and be merry, have a great time. But for those who await the kingdom of God, for us, who have a hope in the life to come, that way of life is unacceptable for us. So then we might ask, what does a truly Christian way of life look like? How should we live in this world? Well, Christ tells us. He says, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. So he says, as opposed to the culture around us that seek these things, that define themselves according to what they have and what they consume, Christ tells us, do not worry. And do not worry might be translated as do not be concerned. That is, don't be preoccupied. Don't give heed to. Don't pay a second thought to these material needs. Because as pilgrims journeying toward the kingdom of God, such is the only appropriate response to the things of the world. Not to worry, not to seek them, not to live the rat race that everyone else is caught up in. Why? Well, Christ continues, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Contrary to what the propaganda that we are force-fed every day would like us to believe, there is more to life than shopping, having more, and fattening our bank accounts. Indeed, there's far more to life than these things. That's what the Lord says. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. The psalmist, Asaph, he learned this um, the hard way. Psalm 73 One of my favorite psalms uh, chronicles his struggle with envy, looking upon, in his words, the prosperity of the wicked, that they are always at ease, that they are not in trouble as other men, that they increase in wealth and drink the waters of abundance, Asaph despairs and complains, saying, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in, innocence. in today's world, you might say Asaph lives in a poor community. He doesn't have all the necessities. He struggles to put food on the table. But he's a righteous man. He follows the Lord. And then he looks to the rich community and the people who have no regard for God, who are at ease and they have nothing that they don't need. They're all taken care of. And Asaph wonders, well, where's the reward in following God? And he's ready to give it up. He's ready to put the whole thing away. Because what good is there in righteousness, he wonders, if the unrighteous live sumptuously and free from care? He's ready to give it up until, he says, I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. When Asaph came into the presence of God, when he went into the temple, He was freed from a worldly mind. Now possessing a heavenly mind, Asaph sees his foolishness and he says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He was thinking about things only according to this world. He had forgotten about God. He had forgotten about things eternal. He was like the rich man. You remember the rich man says, I'm going to feed my soul. Um, I've got goods laid up to come. And he treats himself like an animal. And here Asaph says, I was like a beast before you. But now, now that Asaph has had his vision corrected, in light of God's judgment, he recognizes that the end of the unrighteous wealthy is destruction and terror. He realizes that their end is going to be one that is terrible, and therefore he explains, exclaims, excuse me, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Asaph's reward, he recognizes, is far greater than the passing pleasure of earthly riches. But instead, it is God himself. The Lord is his portion. I will not want, says King David. So, Let the unrighteous fatten themselves on created goods while they await judgment. Asaph would rather have the Creator; He would rather have the Lord. Indeed, we see from Psalm 73 that life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And this is what the Lord tells His disciples. There is more to life than simply what's before your eyes. Therefore... If God truly is our portion and our desire upon earth if our hope is really with the Lord and the kingdom of God it will be reflected of course in our way of life where your heart is there your treasure will be also and so when we have our heart set on the Lord when we have our hope invested in the kingdom of God earthly goods money possessions and the niceties of life they will lose their luster you guys remember the hymn turn your eyes upon Jesus right turn your eyes upon Jesus and in in his light and glory all the things of the world will grow dim strangely dim right I'm messing it up I didn't have it in my notes but it came to my mind you guys know better than I do right they're going to grow the things of the earth are going to lose their luster and eternal goods Faith, hope, love will be seen for what they are. They will be regarded as invaluable. Thus, like Asaph, we will choose to be rich toward God rather than in this world. We will live simply rather than decadently. We will scatter rather than gather. And we will possess virtue rather than the finer things in life. And then we'll be worthy of the name the people of God. But again, if we are to be the people of God, living as pilgrims in this world, we need something to enable us to do that. And Christ tells us, continuing on in verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds! And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the world eagerly seeks, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So in order to live as Christ commands us, We need faith. Faith is the thread that runs through that entire passage we just read. And faith is indispensable because it's a form of sight. The Holy Scriptures say, we walk by faith and not by sight. And then Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is a form of sight. By faith, we see things unseen through the merely physical and perishable to the spiritual and imperishable. If we are to live the simple and generous lifestyle that Christ commands, we must have faith. That is, we must see the unseen kingdom of God as where our lives really lie we must see through this world to the world to come and realize that is what counts that is what truly matters as it's said of our forefathers again Hebrews chapter 11 all these died in faith without receiving the promises but listen but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on earth. So through faith, we see the unseen kingdom of God. We welcome it as from a distance, as yet to come. And therefore, we confess that on this earth, that in this life, we are exiles and pilgrims. This is not our home. Now, that vision is necessary if we are to live with the proper relationship toward earthly goods and possessions that Christ would have us to. And so if you flip the equation, a preoccupation and a concern with worldly goods betrays a lack of faith. That one does not see things unseen, but only what is before their eyes. Only this world. So one comes to worry and fret over the, uh, over food and clothing and shelter when one begins to regard those as the main substance of life. Remember the Lord's words, there's more to it than this. There's more to life than food. There's more to the body than clothing. There's more, but when, when we fail to see that there's more, then we become preoccupied with worldly things. Remember, greed reduces our vision to merely the material, to merely what is before us, and when it does, then comes anxiety, then comes fear, and then comes every evil thing. And that uneasy concern that comes from a worldly mindset, it doesn't profit us the slightest. Christ asks, which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? If you can't do this, then why are you worrying about all these other things? Consider what the rich man's um, concern got him. He was concerned, what am I going to do with all my stuff? And so he stores it up. He had many years, many goods for many years to come. But in the end, he couldn't add even a single hour to his life. That very night, his soul was required of him. So, again, turning the passage toward us if we find ourselves reluctant to part with our possessions and wealth in order to help someone in need it reveals the state of our faith thus the rebuke you men of little faith it betrays the fact that our hope is in this age rather than the next and that we place our value in earthly treasure rather than heavenly treasure our lord's words are true where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Now, this week, not wanting to be a hypocrite, we're asking the Lord, give us opportunity to do this. And so, sure enough, over the actually the past couple of weeks, we've had opportunity. And it really does make you put your money where your mouth is. Putting away, giving away, you know, a third of our paycheck so that we can help someone in need was a reality check. Helping me to realize. Okay, I'm investing way too much in this life than I realize. But rather I'm giving these things, trying to give these things away to invest in treasures in heaven. Again, one wouldn't be reluctant to spend a few thousand dollars to get something that they desperately wanted. You want it with all your heart. You've been looking forward to it. The thousand, the $2,000, however many thousand dollars it is, is a non-concern. I want this. Here's the money. Take it. It doesn't matter. Of course, they would give it up in an instant. Again, then why would anyone, especially us, be reluctant to trade in possessions and wealth to receive the very riches of God? Of course they would. No one would. And if we are, again, again, it betrays the state of our faith. So, let us, therefore, set our hearts toward heaven where true riches are. Because then and only then are we going to be able to treat earthly goods for what they are, earthly. In light of true riches, they're going to lose their ultimacy and we'll be freed from bondage to them. We won't be serving our possessions. Rather, they'll be serving us and the kingdom of God. Our wealth, rather than being a snare to us, will be a cause of our blessing. The Lord says, do not be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid of the things of this world, for your Father has chosen gladly To give you the kingdom. So, by faith, if we're to walk this walk, we must see the unseen kingdom of heaven, and by faith, we must regard God as our Father. Christ sums up all his teaching in these words and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for, don't worry, don't worry about these things for, All these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. Your father knows that you need these things. So the concern for worldly goods that Christ prohibits is rooted in a faulty perception of God. In other words, one becomes worried about earthly things, one becomes preoccupied about earthly things when one Forgets that God is their Father. They believe that their well being is up to them, and that if they don't make it happen, if they don't put bread on the table, if they don't put shelter over their family, if they don't take care of them, then no one will. Thus, the entirety of their lives is plagued by a gnawing anxiety. I have to do it. It's up to me. Such is life without the Father. But with the Father, things are much different. Consider the ravens. Consider the lilies, Christ tells his disciples. See how the Father provides for them. Ravens are unclean birds. The lilies are here today and then gone tomorrow. And yet, God takes care of them. As the word says, the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his work. Look around, we're outdoors. See how the Lord takes care of His creation. And if He cares for mere animals and even inanimate things, how much more will He care for humans created in His image? Christ's words are designed to expose the absurdity of our unbelief. To expose how ridiculous it is to think that the Father will not take care of His own. Are we so stupid to believe that God would forsake us? That he would suffer to see his children destitute and begging? That he would close his ears to our cries? Right? We should repent for ever even entertaining the thought that God would do such a thing. Rather Christ settles our anxiety, he reminds us, your father knows that you need these things. But we foolishly think, well, their needs And the more necessary they are, the more necessary it is for me to go out and get them. The more necessary it is for me to provide for my family, to do all these different things. But rather, we ought to think the more necessary they are, the less I ought to be concerned. The more something is necessary in your life, food, clothing, shelter, a job, all these different things, the less we should be concerned with them. Why? Well, does a son... Ask his father or a daughter or her mother for food or clothing or shelter? Of course not. Those things are presupposed. The more necessary they are, the less there is need to ask. You shouldn't have to ask your parents to give you these things because they know to give you them. The initiative is with the parents and so it is with the father. He knows that we need these things. And it's his nature to provide for us. Therefore... Christ says, stop worrying. He's going to take care of you. He's going to meet your needs and to give you what it is that you're lacking. Consider, if the Father gave us His own Son, how much more will He give us lesser things? Reason, from the greater to the lesser. If He provided His own Son, if He became poor for us and He went to the cross and died for our sins, that we might have eternal life, how much more is God going to give you the very small things of life? He takes care of His own people. So therefore, we are directed to recalibrate our vision and to remember that there is more to life than these things. That The kingdom of God far surpasses anything in this life. And that the things of this world, the Father is going to take care of us. He's going to give you what you need. He's not going to let you suffer want. And so in light of such wonderful promises, Christ instructs us, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also if these things are true if the kingdom of god is to come if the father will provide for us christ says sell your possessions and give to charity lay up for yourself treasures in heaven now the literalness with which we should take these words has been argued about since really they have been spoken Some, beginning with Clement of Alexandria, have interpreted these words in a more figural manner. That is, rather than literally selling one's possessions, Christ's intention is to, and I quote, banish from the soul its opinions about riches, its attachments to them, its excessive desire, and its anxious cares. And now a similar interpretation is common today, but others, beginning with Anthony and the late Second century or the early third century, Anthony, the first monk, he read and applied these words literally, literally selling all his goods and retreating from ordinary life to devote himself entirely to prayer and meditation. But what should we do? And I just want to say a few words about each option and then give you what I believe to be is the proper approach. Now, the strength of the figural approach to Jesus' words sell all your possessions and give to charity, again, which is more popular today, is that it pays close attention to the heart, which, as we know, is the most important thing of all. And another place, Jesus tells us, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles a man. That is, it's entirely possible for someone to um, appear outwardly obedient to the command, but remain inwardly disobedient. One may rid themselves of all their wealth and possessions and yet remain inwardly covetous and greedy. All the emphasis of an external act to the neglect of the heart will produce is self-righteous and hypocritical Christians. Now, the weakness, or excuse me, therefore the figural approach is entirely right to lay the emphasis on the inward disposition of the person. It all begins with the heart. It all starts with the heart. But again, the weakness of the figural position is that it often becomes a foil for avoiding the command. If my heart is free from greed, if I'm not attached to my possessions, it doesn't matter how much I have or how I spend my money because I'm good in my heart. But we know that's a distortion of Christ's teaching. And the second interpretation to Jesus' words is the literal approach. And now again, the obvious strength of the literal approach is that it takes and fulfills the commands literally. Based on St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, it appears that he envisions Christians who will be obedient to the command. Summing up his words on voluntary virginity, he says, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So, In other words, some are called to fully abstain from the normal affairs of life. You think about marriage and all that entails for a person and specifically a woman in that culture. There's to abstain from those things in order that they may devote themselves entirely to the Lord. Now, again, I would not go so far as to say that this um, confirms the monastic vocation, living as a monk. But it does envision a type of quasi-monastic lifestyle. Someone who's living separate to a certain degree more than others so they can devote themselves entirely to these things. But the bottom line, however, is that this literal approach of Jesus' um, of Jesus's words is a specific calling for a specific few. Because obviously not everyone can, can fulfill that command literally. Because in another place the Apostle Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own, And especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So therefore, there needs to be some sort of provision taking care of his family. There can't be just a complete renunciation and devoting themselves entirely. So, we have to synthesize these two understandings to hopefully be as true to the commandments as possible. And I think the straightforward answer, and this is nothing new, is that Christians should live simple lives for the sake of of one, their own spiritual health, and two, the sake of sharing with those in need. Now first, we are commanded to live simply for the sake of our own spiritual health. Riches, the Holy Scripture is abundantly clear, are a snare to our spiritual lives. Listen to Christ's words on the matter. This is from the parable of the sower. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go their way, are choked with the worries. Uh, Listen to the resonance of our passage um, that we're looking at this morning. These are the ones that have heard, and as they go their way, are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So the riches and pleasures of this life, along with the worries that so often accompany them, overwhelm and render the word ineffective, in our hearts. Therefore, CBC, if we are to grow up into maturity, there needs to be a certain distance in our lives from the luxuries which the world enjoys. Now, it's not that these things are evil in and of themselves. Rather, the problem is our own flesh. We cannot have that much without forgetting God. You guys know Proverbs chapter 30, where he says, Lord, I really want one thing. Don't give me, just give me enough. I don't want to have too little so that I go and rob someone and dishonor you. And I don't want to have too much so that I forget you. I forget that I need you and rely upon you. There is a point where, and I don't know what that point is, it's probably different for each person, but where it becomes too much and it becomes a hindrance to our spiritual life. Too much comfort, too much pleasure, too much of the things of the world, and it overwhelms the flesh and it leads it to worldly things. So thus, we are commanded to live a simple life that we may cultivate the necessary soil in which the work of God can thrive, where the Word won't be choked out, where the Word can have good soil to produce fruit. And secondly, we're commanded to live a simple life for the sake of generosity. Now remember last week, Our duty to share with the poor is clearly the point of the parable of the rich man. He was condemned because rather than taking only what he needed and then turning the rest over to the poor, he kept back everything for himself. Thus, the Lord commands us, sell our possessions in order that we may give the proceeds to charity, that we may give alms, that we may help those in need. Remember, our wealth and our possessions are not Ours, but the Lord's. We are only stewards of what He has given us, and therefore, whatever surplus we have, it's to be directed according to God's purposes. And He clearly says that that excess, the surplus, is to be given to others. So, by simplifying our lives, by eliminating excess and frivolous spending, we're able to maximize the good that we do toward others. And thus we can fulfill the command, love thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor as thyself, and in doing so we make ourselves rich toward God. But lastly, and we'll wind down with this, we need to ask, what does a simple life look like? The Apostle Paul in first Timothy chapter six, verses six through eight, essentially gives us the picture. He says, But godliness actually mean is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So, the Apostle Paul is saying that the proper Christian lifestyle is one in which we have that which is sufficient to preserve our health. With that, we can be satisfied. And truly, if we have clothes for our body, if we have food on our table, if we have a roof over our heads and the promise of eternal life, what more do we need? We need nothing more. We have it all. Even then, we are richer than any man on the earth. And now I understand the simple life looks different for different people and different families. There's different medical needs, different Uh, dependence, and so on and so forth. Therefore, I don't want to lay down a hard and fast rule and say, this is what it is, this is how you have to live. Rather, you have the Holy Spirit. It would be far better to seek Him and to listen to Him than whatever I can recommend to you. So I would encourage, set aside time to pray about these things, to examine your financial habits, your generosity, and to judge whether it reflects the pattern of this world or the kingdom of God, whether the way we're spending our money and using our wealth is in accordance with a hope that is to come or a hope that's rooted in this life. But remember, we're not giving up more to get less in return. Instead, we're giving up dead and dying things, mere earthly riches to gain eternal riches and glory in the kingdom of God. And now this morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we want to remember that. Because our communal meal here, the bread and the cup, it's a foretaste of the kingdom to come. It's looking ahead to when we will sit at the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we will be with the Lord. We're remembering our hope as we take this, that the Lord is our portion that He's our food, that He's our drink, and that we need nothing beyond Him. And so, as we partake, let's look with an eye toward our hope to come, because truly that is where our hope lies, and that is where our life lies. Therefore, let us not store up for ourselves treasure on this earth, but treasure in heaven, where the Lord says, neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let us partake looking toward the kingdom of God. Let's go ahead and pray first.